Well, good evening, everybody. It's uh, both a pleasure um, and an honor for me to be here this evening. Uh, first of all, uh, a pleasure, because I always find it a pleasure to uh, open the Bible and uh, to find something new there. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Bible is there's always something new, uh, something that you might have uh, read numerous times, and then you suddenly see something which you've never seen before and which completely changes the way you look at life that week or for the rest of your life for that matter. That's the, the pleasure side of it and it's also an honor. I mean, it is an honor to be invited uh, to, to come from England to this beautiful part of the world in, in Colorado. Um, it's, I suppose, an honor uh, to be standing in front of Japheth uh, once more. Um, who, like he was in college, is, is not taking any notes. So, um, it's, a, it's a great honor, Japheth, and thank you very much, <laughs> all joking apart, as they say, uh, for giving me the invitation to come. And I've already met many um, very friendly people here, and um, I'm sure that as we go through this weekend together, um, we'll get to know each other better, we'll have time for questions and answers, and my hope is that as we look at the place of stories in the Bible, uh, why are they there? And once we know that they are there, how do they work? And how do we read them? And what difference does it make to our reading of the Bible and therefore to our understanding of our relationship with God if we can get in under the, the surface of stories in the Bible? So. I thought I would begin with a, uh, just a summary of uh, our weekend together, just um, to begin with, before in this first uh, short section, we'll explore some of the characteristics of biblical stories, characteristics that are well worth taking into account if we are going to fully, not just understand, but to enjoy biblical stories. You remember, the, remember when you were young? Uh, for some of us, like me, it's taking some time, you know, but when we were young and uh, we said to our parents or our grandparents, tell us a story. There was a sense of wonder because as children, we enter with imagination and wonder into the world of stories. And yet we think when we come to the Bible, wonder and imagination we last thought of when we were six years old. No, no, we need to have it as we come to Scripture. So, why does uh, the Bible tell stories? Just uh, a few points just to get us going on this. Well, one of the reasons why the Bible tells stories is because it wants its readers, that's ourselves, to experience God. It's one of the basic elements of the Bible. It wants us to experience God not simply know about him, but to experience him. And then to experience God, we must embrace imagination and wonder. And I hope that as we move into biblical stories, we'll see what that means and what we can get from imagination and wonder. And biblical stories about God require their readers to, to read them with imagination and wonder. If we embrace 
imagination. Come to the, uh, a biblical story, a bit like Moses standing before the burning bush in awe and wonder. I think we'll be amazed at what we find. One of the great things about biblical stories is that so many of them appear to be simple. You know, a certain man had two sons. Apparently very simple, yet so profound that having read one of those stories once, it can change our lives. I came across this statement just last week, which is that when read with imagination and wonder, biblical stories are irresistibly persuasive. Every one of us, no matter what culture we come from, wherever we were born in the world, we all know what makes a good story, and stories are irresistibly persuasive. We'll, we'll see how that works in the Bible before the, the weekend's over, I'm sure. And so that is why the Bible tells stories. So if you want the short version of this weekend, you've already got it, okay? Don't leave, but that is the, the, the short version, which basically sums up what I'm going to, going to be talking about. Now, when we come to the Bible, we start reading the Bible, many of us may have made a New Year's resolution that we're going to work through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. One of the things which I think we will notice is that there are an awful lot of stories in the Bible. Um, when you come to the, uh, the First Testament, to the Old Testament, about at least, at least one-third of the Old Testament is made up of stories, of narratives. When we come to the New Testament, we have getting on for 50% maybe of the New Testament um, are stories. We have the four Gospels, numerous narratives in the Gospels. The Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is an extended narrative of the early church. Now we have more in those books than just narratives, but it's narratives that are predominant. When you think of all these biblical books from the Old Testament, books like, if you go from Genesis to Second Kings, it's largely narrative. And then to that you can add Esther, Jonah, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, parts of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You can't hide from biblical stories. But why should that be the case? Why is it that there are so many stories in the Bible? Because after all, if the Bible is God's word, doesn't God have more serious things to be doing than telling stories? Because stories, I mean, well, they're just stories. Well, that is one of the big mistakes we make because for us, stories are often things we, we read in order to fill in time. Sitting in the, the waiting room for the dentist to take our mind off the drill, you know, read a story. Sit on the beach on a summer holiday, reading a story to while away time. Because in our culture and in our time, stories, they have been devalued. But the reason why the Bible is full of stories is that they are the product of the Hebrew Jewish mind. And the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites knew the irresistible persuasive power of stories.
So if you were walking down the street here in Boulder, I'm told you're a fairly you know, open community in this part of the world, you're walking down the street in Boulder, somebody uh, might tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, but look, could you tell me, what is the meaning of life? You know, somebody might do that. Well, I suspect that if you're going to answer that question, you would uh, think for a moment, and uh, you would give a kind of uh, a logical argument, some kind of philosophical or semi-philosophical argument. You say, well, I think if you were to take into account this, and if you look at the world and take all of that into account, you bring all of these together, I think you would agree with me, wouldn't you, that the meaning of life is, well, you know, whatever your, the meaning of life that you have. But if you were walking down the street in ancient Jerusalem, and you stopped somebody on the street in ancient Jerusalem, and you said to them, excuse me, uh, my, my good woman, but what is the meaning of life? She would reply, let me tell you a story. Because stories to the Jewish Hebrew mind are the means by which we explore the largest questions in life. One of the reasons for that is that once you've heard an irresistibly persuasive story, you will never forget it. You will never forget it. So let me give you an example um, of, uh, of what I mean. Um, you know, I, I just recently retired from a department of theology and uh, theologians uh, have an interest in making things complicated a professional interest in making them complicated. Um, so if we look at something as uh, basic as um, salvation, the experience of salvation or the experience of forgiveness, the typical way in which we do theology is to use abstract terms. So I'll give you an example of here. This is the Fundamental belief number 10 of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, what we're going to read here, I think, would be generally accepted uh, by Christians of, uh, of every denomination. So, um, I've condensed it a little bit here. But the experience of salvation is this. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent of our transgressions, exercise faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ as substitute and example through Christ we are justified adopted as God's sons and daughters and delivered from the lordship of sin now of course if you were to use that kind of language to the person who stops you on the street in Boulder and says excuse me but uh, you know what is the Christian faith uh, that now if you ask me a statement like that is it true well yes it's true all you need to know is, well, what or who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, what is sinfulness? Repentance? What's that? Transgressions? Faith? Uh, substitute? Example? Justification? Uh, adoption? And, and lordship? But once you understand all of those, everything's pretty simple. In other words, this statement of what salvation is, is something written for the eye. It is something we read. Now compare that with this next 
alternative way of doing theology. And Jesus said, there was a certain man who had two sons. And I think most of you know what the rest of that story is. The younger son said to his father, give me my part of the estate. He went off and wasted it in a far country. He came to his senses. He came back to his father. When his father saw him at a distance, do you remember what his father did? What did he do? He ran. He ran. Threw his arms around his son, kissed him. Even though in the ancient world it was considered demeaning for old men to run, you show your dignity by walking. But this old man ran. Because he didn't care what the neighbors thought. It seems to me that that gets to the heart of what it means to experience salvation and forgiveness better than many committees of theologians. And that's why the Bible is full of stories. And that's why, if I were to put the screen blank, most of you would be able to complete the story on the right and not have a clue about how to reform the statement on the left. Well, I, the majority, I'm not going to offend those of you who would be able to do both. Now, how do biblical stories actually work? That's part of the task that I'd like us to work on this, uh, this weekend. How do biblical stories work and what should we keep an eye out for? Because biblical stories don't work like modern Western stories that we are used to. They uh, have different criteria. So we're going to have a look at that. What I'm going to do next is going to look at the first page of a, um, of a popular novel. This is by Sally Vickers called The Other Side of You. Now I realize that some of you who come to church don't come to church to read the first page of a novel. So let me assure you this is to serve a higher purpose. Okay. <laughs> so let's just read what it says. She was a slight woman, pale, with two wings of dark hair which framed her face and gave it the faintly bird-like quality that characterized her person. Even at this distance of time, which has clarified much that was obscure to me, I find her essence hard to capture. She was youthful in appearance, but there was also an air of something ambiguous about her, which was both intriguing and daunting. When we met, she must have been in her 40s, but in a certain light, she could have been 14 or, or 400. Though when I say light, I perhaps mean that subtle light of the mind, which casts as many shadows as it illuminates, but in the right conditions, can reveal a person's being more accurately than the most powerful beam. Once I would have known her age to the day since it would have been part of the bald list of information on her medical file. Name, sex, date of birth. Of the last detail, I have a hazy recollection that her birthday was in September. Here's the 
first page of a, a recent Western novel. You notice the characteristics of this first page of this modern story. First of all, uh, we have physical description. We are given ideas as to what this woman looks like. She's slight, she's pale, she has dark hair framing her face, gives it a bird-like quality. She, she's youthful in appearance. We're beginning to pick up a picture of what she looks like, her physical appearance. We're also given some psychological insight as well. You notice there in the uh, second line there, something which characterized her, her person. And yet there's something, uh, her essence there. There's something ambiguous about her. He talks of the light of the mind, a person's being. This is an insight into somebody's mind, what they're thinking. Also, there's an interest in her age. She's probably in her 40s, but she, well, she could have been 14 or, well, apparently 400. Um, once uh, her age would have been known, her date of birth would have been known, her birthday would have been known. There's an interest in her age. And notice in this story that the one telling the story, the uh, narrator, is, um, is a character two. Um, yes, you notice uh, there on the, uh, on the third line, it talks about me and I, beginning of the second paragraph there, when we met, and so on. The, the narrator is also a character in this story. Me, we, I. Now, when we read a story and we find those characteristics like that, those sorts of characteristics, we're not surprised because modern stories are full of those sorts of details. But by comparison, let's compare this with a biblical story, an Old Testament story from Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read it first and um, it's one of those slides where I've had to cram a little bit in so but you can never get too much of the word of God, right? <laughs> so let's just read it first of all to remind ourselves and then we'll look at the characteristics. After these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father? And he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And when they came to the place that God had shown him, Abram built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now in this story, you'll notice that at the very beginning, the narrator provides some minimal information. On that first line, the narrator tells us that God tested Abraham. So what we're reading is a test. But in comparison to what we read before, you notice there is no physical description of anybody in this story. For example, Abraham. How tall is Abraham? How short? Color of his hair? The intensity of his eyes? Does he stand erect? Is he stooped? Is he, you know, I mean, handsome or as ugly as sin? I mean, we don't have a clue because the story doesn't tell us. What does Isaac look like? What's the comparative height as we see the father and son? Father taller than the son, son taller than the father? We are not told. No physical description. And in not giving us any physical description, this is a typical Old Testament story. Hardly ever are we given any physical description. When we are, we know it's important. More of that later. Also, we're not giving any insight into Abraham's mind. No psychological insight at all. When God tells him to do this unimaginable act, what in the world was going through Abraham's mind as he takes his son and starts walking up that mountain? What in the world was he thinking? We're not told. So how is the significance of this story conveyed then? We're not told what people look like. We're not told what they're thinking. How is it conveyed? Well, it's conveyed indirectly. And that is perhaps one of the major differences between biblical stories and the kinds of stories we tend to read in general media is that meaning is conveyed indirectly, not explicitly. So how is it conveyed? Well, it's conveyed through what Abraham says. So if you look here at uh, uh, everything that Abraham said, okay? Um, he said, he said, Abraham said, he said, Isaac said, in fact, he said, Abraham said, the angel of the Lord called, he said, he said, oh, sorry, uh, and said, there's an awful lot of talking going on. So meaning conveyed through what people say and what people do. What, does, uh, what do people in Abraham in particular do? 
Well, Abraham, he rose early in the morning. He saddles the donkey. He cuts the wood. He sets out. He goes to the place. He looks up. He saw the place far away. He says, we'll come back. We'll worship. They walked on, and so on and so forth. What we do get an awful lot of is what people say and what people do rather than anything on what he was thinking. And now let's pick out some typical characteristics that Hebrew storytellers love to include in their biblical stories. And first and foremost among these, pride of place, I think, must go to repetition. You know, the problem with us is that repetition, we say, boring, boring. Uh -uh. If something is repeated in a biblical story, it's the biblical storyteller's way of saying, this is important. That's why I'm repeating it. This animal skin that I'm writing it on is very expensive, and I'm not multiplying words to no effect. Okay? Let's look at the amount of repetition that we get in this story. Um, you notice uh, God, he said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And down here he said, here I am. And down here he says, here I am. He certainly knows where he is. Then the, um, notice here, take your son, your only son. His son, Isaac. My son, up here. His son. His son. Your son. Your only son. I think I missed out another son there as well. And to our Western minds, we're saying, come on, we already know he's his son. Get on with the story. But why do you think a biblical storyteller wants to keep emphasizing your son, your son, your son, your only son, Isaac? The repetition gives us a clue as to what the heart and motivation of this story is. And here also, so the two of them walked on together. Who, Abraham and who? Abraham and his son. So the two of them walked on together. Can you see them in your mind's eye? Can you see the two of them walking on together to that mountain? No insight into what's going through their minds, but through repetition, and other devices, we get an insight into what's going on in this story. So, if we summarize what we've seen here then, um, yes, if we summarize it, what we find then is that the narrator, the biblical narrator, gives minimal explicit insight the narrative is sustained through dialogue, through speech, and through action, and through repetition, some of it word for word. 
So if we compare the modern novelist that we had earlier on with the biblical author and look at the similarity, Sally Vickers on the left, what does she gives us, give us? Well, the narrator is a character, I, we, in the story, speaking in the first person. We, she gives us detailed physical description of that woman on that first page of her story. There's explicit psychological analysis and we have no verbatim repetition at all because that is bad style repetition. Too much of it. In Genesis 22, we get minimal insight from the narrator. The narrator is not a character. Hardly ever in the Bible is the narrator a character. Hardly ever at all. There's no physical description. We're given no explicit psychological analysis. But we get verbatim repetition and other kinds of repetition as well. So when we see that, something becomes clear. Biblical narratives, when we're reading biblical narratives, they require us as readers to be more involved than when reading a modern story because the biblical narrator gives us less information to go on. We have to make connections which in modern literature are normally given to us by the writer. So we've got to, we've got to engage imaginatively with these biblical stories because that's what the author wants us to do, to use our imagination and to fill in the gaps between what is not given and where that author wants us to be. So the significance of biblical stories will almost always be implicit rather than explicit. So when we say, well, you know, the Bible never tells us directly, well, no, it doesn't. That's the nature of Hebrew stories. Use your imagination. Some of us have imaginations as brand, brand new, you know, never been used. Now, whenever, as I said, whenever those details which aren't given, whenever they do occur, remember those things which are not usually given in biblical stories, whenever they do occur, we know for a fact. Often theologians only deal in opinions, but I'm giving you a fact. We know for a fact that if those details are present, they are highly significant. I'll give you one example. We said that biblical stories don't normally give physical description, but when we get physical description, it's important. Let's look, for example, at this uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 14. This is the story of Absalom. When Absalom cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, here's an obsessive hair cutter when you read this, okay? He cut the hair, the, what hair? The hair of his head. Well, of course it's the hair of his head. He's not cutting the hair of his chest once a year, all right? Um, at the end of every year, he used to cut it. Cut what? The hair of his head when it was heavy on him. Well, it would be after 12 months, wouldn't it? He cut it. All right, he cut it. Repetition, right? He weighed the hair of his head. 
I don't know if any psychiatrists are here tonight, but this, this, this fellow seems to have some, um, some problems, obsessive uh, interest with, with what? The hair of his head. 200 shekels. Now, we're not quite sure what 200 shekels by the king's weight is, but it's obviously, it's obviously a lot. Otherwise, it's not going to be mentioned. Now, when we know that physical description is hardly ever given, we say, right, I bet you that hair on the head of Absalom is going to have a significant part to play in this story. Because that is a fact, not an opinion. And so we read through the rest of chapter 14, no more mention of his hair. Chapter 15, no more mention of his hair. Chapter 16, no more mention of his hair. Chapter 17, his hair isn't mentioned. We begin to think, I wonder whether that fellow from England was wrong, you know? Because his hair, it's... But chapter 18, we read, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak. Now, you observant readers of this story, why do you think Absalom's head got caught in that tree? Why? His hair! His hair! He's riding at full steam on his mule through the forest. He's got 200 shekels worth of hair in, billowing like a ship in full sail going through that forest and the hair jams him in the tree. But you say, ah, ah the, the narrator doesn't say that. Imagination. Imagination. He's already told us. It's the hair of, in the first passage, it's the hair of his what? The hair of his head. And again, the hair of his head. And then what gets stuck in the oak? His head. When you read in the first passage of what this fellow is doing with his hair, what kind of a character is he, would you say? He's, he's self-obsessed, self narcissistic. Get your hair cut, and could you, could you weigh that for me? Just uh, more or less than last year. Oh, great, you know, wonderful. The man's obsessed pride and because we associate the hair on his head with the deep self-centeredness and pride of Absalom when we see that he meets his end with his head stuck in the tree why did this man come to the end that he did because of his pride his self-centeredness and you say isn't that rather a lot to sort of place on some hair? No. And that's a fact, not an opinion. <laughs> okay. So when you get physical description, it's always important. One other kind of uh, uh, item that we have, just to, to finish off here, um, another kind of repetition that you find in biblical stories is where you read one story 
And then you read another biblical story and you say, hey, hang on a minute, that's very similar to what I, what I read a little while before. And there's another story which is, which is similar to, to those other stories. And so it's the repetition of similar ideas in different stories. Uh, I'll give you one example. Well, three examples, but from uh, the, one, the one book. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram's going down to... Um, to Egypt and when he was about to enter Egypt he said to his wife Sarai look they'll kill me but let you live say you're my sister the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh said what is this you've done to me why didn't you tell me that she was your wife when he finds out that she's really Abram's wife that's in Genesis chapter 12 Genesis 20 while residing in Gerar as an alien Abram said of his wife Sarah guess what he said? <laughs> She's my sister. And King Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. And then Abimelech said, what have you done to us? What were you thinking of? And Abram said, oh, I did it because I thought they'll kill me uh, because of my wife. In Genesis 26, we're with Isaac, Abram's son. And Isaac went to Gerar to, oh, <laughs> King Abimelech. And, um, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, well, surprise, surprise. He said, she's my sister, thinking, or else the men of the place might kill me. King Abimelech said, so she's your wife? What is this that you've done to us? Now, you look at the similarity in, in these stories. In uh, Genesis 12, say you're my wife. Genesis 20, she's, uh, sorry, <laughs> no, say you're my sister, I beg your pardon. Uh, Genesis 20, she is my sister. Genesis 26, she's my sister. Then, um, in chapter 12, the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Chapter 20, the woman was taken into King Abimelech's house. She saved that in, in chapter 26. Um, in chapter 12, what is this that you've done to me? Chapter 20, what have you done to us? Chapter 26, what is this that you've done to us? Um, and also, of course, chapter 12, they'll kill me but let you live. In chapter 20, they'll kill me because of my wife. In chapter 26, thinking or else the men of the place might kill me. So, you're sort of being able to predict what's going to happen next because of the repetition from one story to the next. But the thing with this kind of repetition, which can seem a little bit repetitious, a little bit boring, is this. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram does not know that Sarah is going to be the mother of a child. And he passes her off because, well, she's not much use to him. In chapter 20, however, Abraham does know that Sarah is going to have a child and he's at it again. Again, even though he knows she's going to be the child. She's going to be the mother of a child. And Isaac is so much in awe of his father, Abraham, 
He can't stop himself from doing exactly the same thing. So when we're reading these stories, these stories have to be read together, yes, but at what point and at what stage are these stories which are repeated? Um, what is the significance of the point in which they're told? So, we've looked at just uh, a few characteristics. We're gonna look at more during the weekend but I hope I've shown enough for you to, to see that to understand biblical stories, we need to use our imagination because, because biblical narratives often withhold information that we normally get when we're reading modern stories. And sometimes they'll simply repeat this and repeat that and say, hey, what do you think about it? Because I'm not gonna tell you. Use your imagination. Uh, so we constantly have to be asking this. Why does he say that? Why does she do the other? And what is the significance of that repetition? Simple questions. But I promise you that when you ask those questions of biblical stories, they come alive.